John 15, 13. This is where we're going to be able to pick up this morning, continuing in on our series in John. Uh, I know we're 15 chapters in, but be encouraged, there's only 21 chapters. So we've got about six and a half left, uh, which may take us, I don't know, three or four years the way it's going. No, I'm kidding. Uh, We should be done by actually uh, next Easter, somewhere around there. So we're going to be giving our attention to verses 13 through 17, a sermon entitled, No Greater Love and Friendship, uh, as we've continued to be encouraged by the Word of God. Uh, However, in order to keep the context, we're going to start reading from John 15, chapter 9, and read to verse 17. Uh, So if you would, if you were able and willing, would you stand for the honor of reading God's word together, recognizing that God himself has spoken to us, his people, through his word, and that is a tremendous, tremendous thing we ought to have reverence for. Jesus is speaking to his his disciples, and he says this, starting in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask in my Father, uh, ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you. That you love one another. First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for the beauty, the majesty, the wisdom that's found in your scriptures. Father, it is an absolute privilege to be able to sit here in this country, in this state, in this room, and open up the word of God and unabashedly exposit it. Father, what a gift it is that we have, and we thank you uh, for those who have sacrificed so that we can do this very thing. Lord, we know that uh, there is wisdom to be found, and we need wisdom for your word. We need growth in our spiritual lives, so we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts by your spirit, that we may be made more like Jesus because of what is preached here this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for the many gifts you give us, most of all. For the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So just a reminder of where we've picked up. We were here just a few weeks ago talking about joy. uh, And it continues in this context to be only a matter of hours actually before Jesus goes to the cross. But before he does, Jesus has a lot of instruction that he needs to leave his disciples. And so he does just that. And so I don't have any points or headings this morning. We're going to take this verse by verse and, and just explain the word of God and look at it together and apply it together. And so let's uh, look at what he says starting off in verse 13 of John chapter 15. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This verse means a lot to us, doesn't it? Especially on weekends like this weekend. We know that the greatest acts of love are those that are sacrificial in nature. 
Uh, on 9-11, I always think about uh, the, when those heroic passengers on Flight 93 chose to sacrifice their lives for the sake of others by intentionally crashing that plane near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It was an act of loving heroism, was it not? In fact, it's what we celebrate every patriotic holiday, it seems, isn't it? The willingness of sacrificial love to put your life on the line for the sake of others. And I dare say there's no greater human thing that can be done for somebody else. It's a loving act indeed. Whenever a person is willing to sacrifice his or her life for the sake of others, it's amazing. We have an example of extraordinary sacrificial love when that happens. But that said, there's something we need to realize. What, What Jesus is referring to here in this particular verse isn't exactly what we celebrate today. It's referring to what he's about to do for his own. In fact, while the examples that were just mentioned, they are are certainly worthy of our attention and respect and holidays to remember such things. But friends, even sacrifices like that, when they're compared to the sacrificial love of Christ, there is no comparison. In fact, the sacrifice of Christ gives those sacrificial uh, acts of love meaning and purpose. Without the sacrificial love of Christ, there would never be a reason to give your life for someone else. And so we have to look at the idea, the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus has for his people is unique. So unique that it cannot be replicated at all. After all, his death was an atoning death that secured salvation for his people. There is no way that there is even one of us that could ever secure eternal salvation for someone else. Even if we were willing to lay down our lives for somebody else, our deaths cannot and do not merit salvation. What can compare to the voluntary death of the one who is God and man? There is none. Especially when you think about this. Jesus didn't have to die. The Bible says that all men are appointed to die with the exception of this one person, Jesus Christ. His life was not destined for the grave in the same way that it is for all of us who are born in our sin. All of us are headed to the grave from the moment we're conceived because we're all sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. So when one of us offers up our life as a sacrifice for others, the the fact is our, our lives are destined to end anyway. With Jesus, we've got something that is altogether different. Jesus didn't have to die. His death wasn't simply a life cut short. Jesus' death wasn't necessary and it certainly was avoidable. In him is life immortal. And yet, what do we find him doing? He intentionally and purposefully gives his life. He knew full well that he was going to die. He knew full well that it was the very purpose for which he came. But the thing for us to understand in all of this is to be reminded that he died voluntarily. His life was not taken from him. He gave his life. And friends, it was nothing but his love for the Father and his love for us that kept him on the cross at every given moment. We know that he could have called down a host of angels from heaven and destroyed everyone around him, but he did not do that. He voluntarily stayed upon that cross for his love for the Father and his love for you if you belong to him. What a gift. What a sacrificial love. Surely there is no greater love. 
while we're thinking about his sacrificial death and its uniqueness, it's important for us also to keep in mind that his, his death wasn't even merely a physical death. He not only suffered physically, and he did suffer physically, but worse than that, on the cross, he suffered the very wrath of God. Friends, we can't even begin to grasp the suffering that Jesus endured upon the cross. We can't even begin to wrap our mind around the full wrath of God that he would have for us poured out upon his son. His sacrificial death was not merely an instance of one person dying a physical death to save the physical life of another. Rather, his death was also spiritual in nature. He died the death that we should have had to die. He died and suffered in our stead. Friends, the death and the judgment that we deserve, it, it wasn't just a physical death that we deserve, it, 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 that we inherited from being sinners in Adam. It's also an eternal death that God has judged upon all of mankind. Friends, you have to recognize that in our sinful state, you and I, we deserve both our physical death and the spiritual suffering for all of eternity. But Jesus died in our stead. So it wasn't only a physical death. But he suffered the very torments of hell on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. His death was truly like no other. And what do we do with this truth? What's the purpose behind knowing that Jesus' death was unique? There's a couple of things. For starters, I think we should be grateful recipients of such a costly salvation. We ought to be grateful recipients for such a costly salvation. Should any one of us in this room ever begin to doubt Christ's love for us, we ought to be quick to remind ourselves the lengths to which he has gone in order to show his love for us. Uh, John actually reminds of, the, uh, of this in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, where he says this. He says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. This is the definition of love. Not that we loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Lord, as great as it is to know the love that God has for us and the joy, the gratitude that ought to flow out from this kind of knowledge, there is something even more for us to do here. And it was just mentioned in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 4, but even in more practical terms what Brother Brad read in 1 John 3.16. Now keep in mind, this is John. This is the same writer of the gospel we're reading in our text. And when you read his epistle, when you read his gospel, you can't help but notice the image emphasis on the subject of love. He talks about it over and over again. And here, he gives us some practical ideas. What does this love look like in action? Look at this in 1 John 3, chapter 16 and 18. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And look what he says. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. In deed and in truth. What does that look like? This, 
There's more to the sacrificial love than just saying, I love you. There's more than sacrificial love than even just words. We must also love indeed. Whenever we consider others above ourselves, whenever we can die to ourselves, our own one's desires for the sake and the blessings of others, we are imitating the love that has been shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrificing our wants, our desires for those of others is a very Christ-like thing to do. And, and to tell you the truth, friends, many of our relationships and our lives would be so much better off if we would be willing to apply sacrificial love. This is what love looks like in action. To give up your life, to give up your desires for the blessings of others. It's truly what the Apostle Paul would continue to refer to as putting one another before yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Believers, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. So let me ask you, when is the last time you can even think in your own mind of you showing sacrificial love? To your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to strangers, to those in the church body, which is what John's referring to here. Has there ever been anything that you have said, I am willing to sacrifice what I want, what I feel like I need, and what I even feel is like a good desire for the blessing and benefit of somebody else? Friends, it's what it looks like to be a Christian. And it's the type of love that imitates the gospel love that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have that kind of love. Let's move on to verse 14 now. Jesus says in verse 14 of John chapter 15, he says, you, this is just, I can't, I can't fathom this, all right? I just read this and I can't handle the truth that's here. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He calls us his friends. As there is no greater act of love than for Jesus to lay down his life for his friends, there's no greater gift of love than to be recipients of that sacrificial love. To be recipients of his friendship. There is absolutely nothing that can be compared to this gift of having to become the friend of Jesus. In fact, in our human relationships, all of us, I would imagine at least long or desire to have close friends who stick by our side through thick and thin. It's one of the, the beauties about living here close and having some of our old friends that we, we're supposed to see at, uh, at 4th of July so close. Is we have friends that, that I've known since high school that, that live in St. Augustine. We've got friends here in this church that we've had for what seems like forever. It's a beautiful thing to have friends stick by our side. But I've noticed something that as a, as a parent, it's hard to make new friends when you have kids, right? It, it's hard to have time to, to make friends as, as, as parents of small children. In fact, most of your friendships will be wrapped around those who your friends spend time with, which is why it's always good to plan with your friends now to have babies around the same time. Uh, I'm just telling you, that just uh, seemed to, to work for us. No, uh, but no, all of us long to have a close confidant to whom we share our most inner thoughts. They're there are some people we probably meet in whatever stage of life you're at and you, you come to know them or come in contact and there are people we just say, man, I'd really, I'd really like to be friends with that person. But for some reason or another, it just doesn't come to pass. Maybe that, 
That person already has enough friends already or just too busy with the things of life. Or it could be the fact, as it likely was with me in high school, you just aren't cool enough to be on that person's friends list. But whatever the case may be, I love this because with Jesus it's different. See, you and I were never worthy to be his friends to begin with. But in his infinite love and grace, he chose to be our friend. He's the one who took initiative in this friendship. In this relationship, the grounds of his love for us are completely one-sided. In this relationship, uh, it's one-sided. In our normal relationships with one another, that, that, that friendship has to be reciprocated, right? Always. If you want to be friends with somebody, it needs to be reciprocated back. But with our friendship that we have in Christ Jesus, it's not like that. It's actually completely one-sided. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. If that were not the case, then we would never even know his friendship. That's a rich blessing. And while it is a rich blessing to be called the friend of God, with this blessing, blessing comes great responsibility. Because those who are friends with Jesus are those who showed their love for him by what he says in our text. By obeying his commandments. We've said this over and over again. I think John wants to remind us over and over again. It simply will not do for anybody to think that they know the love of God and they know his friendship. Who do not at the same time seek God's grace to show their love for him through their obedience. It just doesn't work. <laughs> But with that said, there's something also beautiful about this text. We do well to understand at the same time, Jesus isn't even satisfied with slavish obedience. That's not what he's after here. He's not after slavish obedience. That's what he's not seeking in, in you and I. The kind of obedience that a slave would render to his master only for a fear of being beaten for disobedience. No, not at all. Jesus didn't die to purchase mere slaves. He died for those that he would call his friends. And when it comes to our obedience to him, he would have us be motivated by our love for him, by our friendship to obey him as an expression of our love toward him in light of his love toward us. That's the kind of obedience he's looking for here. Jesus wants you to be motivated by your love for him. By the friendship that he has bestowed upon you. That the God and creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, would choose to be your friend. Friends, if that's not a motivator to then obey him, I don't know what is. What a great motivation. That Jesus would call me the sinner who lives for himself, the rebel who was born naturally rejecting the things of God, that he would initiate a friendship with me, he would save me, and he would call me his friends. How selfish is it of I that I would spurn that friendship and then go on living for myself and not obeying his word? Friends, we need to get on the same page. See, there's a lot of times when we hear this term friendship, we think that Jesus and I are or homeboys, right? It's what the, the phrase is. Jesus is my homeboy. Have you heard this? You and Jesus are not on the same term. For you to even think that shows that you may not even have an understanding of the gospel. Friends, he chose you as a friend. That's the only reason you're his friend. And it wasn't because of anything worthy in you or deserving in you for being his friend. It's because of his mercy and love and grace. It's the only reason he chose you to be his friend. Amen. Let's listen to what Jesus has to say about this relationship with him. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, 
No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. See, good friends are people with which you can share your heart, aren't they? That's also true with our friendship with Christ. You know, in all the scriptures, there's only one person that is ever referred to as a friend of God. You know who that is? Abraham. In Isaiah 41.8 and James 2.23, he's called the friend of God. And one example that sheds a lot of light that's seen in the account when, when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. At that time, you remember, Abraham's nephew, Lot, was a resident in that land. And so the Lord knew that Abraham loved his nephew. And after visiting with Abraham, the Lord arose to be on his way to go on and destroy the land for its wickedness. And as Abraham walked with the Lord to say goodbye to him, the Lord says this in Genesis 18, 17. And this is remarkable. He says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then you know what he does. The Lord goes on and lets him in on what's about to happen. Why? Because Abraham was his friend. See, if we're friends of God, the Lord lets us in on his will. He allows us to be on the inside, so to speak. In fact, in Psalm 25, verse 14, the psalmist says this. He says, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenant. Friends, God's covenant is the most glorious and intimate thing that could be ever shared with us, to us, by God. Through the work of Jesus, we've been brought into God's inner circle. (laughs) He has whispered in our ear, as it were, the loving truth of his glorious grace in Christ Jesus. Now, no doubt, the gospel is a general call, is given to everybody, but only those who are truly born again will know the intimate details of God's covenant mercies. So in a sense, if you are in Christ, you've been given privileged information. That's something that is only shared with members of the family. So then, let me ask you, as a child of God, as a friend of God, do you cherish this friendship? Do you marvel that the Lord has been so kind and affectionate towards you in bringing you near to Him? We ought to. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses said this to the people of God in verses 7 and 8. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? beautiful. As as the church of God, as the people of God, we are in a privileged position. And right after that, Moses uh, goes on to say this in verse 8. He says, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I'm setting before you today. See, with that relationship, as a friend of God, comes responsibility. It goes along right with what Jesus is saying here in John 15. See, in his love for us as friends, He not only shares with us the gospel message, but he's also shared with us all that he's heard from the Father. It's what the text says. In fact, in in answering that question about what what that means, what does it mean that Jesus has shared with uh, us all that he's heard from the Father, uh, John Calvin explains it like this. He says, Not one of those things, therefore, which related to our salvation and which was of importance for us to know was omitted by Christ in the instructions given to his disciples. 
Thus, so far as he was appointed to be the master and teacher of the church, he heard nothing from the Father which he did not faithfully teach his disciples. Let us only have a humble desire and readiness to learn, and we shall feel that Paul was justly called the gospel wisdom to make men perfect. In other words, Jesus has revealed to us, those who are in his inner circle, those who are his friends, his word, all things that we would need to know for faith and life. Do you recognize that? There are a lot of questions we have, isn't there? I mean, look, this is, this is not an easy read, right? There are some difficult things that we wrestle with when it comes to several topics of the text. And yet, what do we know from the scriptures? What was just said is Jesus has made known to us everything that is necessary for you to live this human life for him. You will never be without on how to live the Christian life. But you have to look in the scriptures. You have to dive into the text. There is not one thing missing that we need to know that hasn't been given to us by the Holy Word. Therefore, God's Holy Word is, is, is sufficient for every one of our needs. You don't need to go anywhere else to get guidance in this life. You've got everything you need in the scriptures. It's a beautiful thing. Let's look at verse 16 now. This is one of those uh, weighty texts. This is one of those texts which is probably the reason I didn't sleep very well last night. But here's what it says. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Here we see the, the beautiful doctrine of election. And even saying that word, maybe it's because of our political realm, uh, we get a little uh, iffy about this. But this is something that's given in the Baptist faith a message. This is something that is no doubt a doctrine. It is the doctrine of God's choosing of his people. And, and listen, I'd love to tell you that I've got all the mysteries of the doctrine of election figured out. I don't. Um, I know this. I know that, that this text exists that says God chooses a people for himself. And yet I know that there is a gospel call to every human being to respond to this gospel call. I know that God's election never goes against human being desires. In fact, God will never choose somebody who doesn't also in unison want to be a Christian. And God will never not choose somebody who also does not want to reject God. In fact, there will never be anyone who's just wishing that they could be a Christian, but God hasn't elected them. That doesn't work. And there's never someone who wishes they they just, they could be anything but a Christian that God has elected. That's not the way it works. But I know this. I know that God has called a certain people unto himself. And I know everyone has the responsibility to respond to the gospel. In fact, I love, I, Brother Johnny told me this. I don't think he got it from, I think he may have got it from Spurgeon or something. I love the day we picture in heaven where on, on the front of the gate of, of heaven, it says, whosoever will. And as people are walking in on the back of that gate, it says, those I've chosen in myself. <laughs> That's a beautiful place to live. And yet, friends, there still is a doctrine of election. And there still are texts like this that we need to look at and examine and wrestle with. And listen, I have wrestled with the doctrine of election almost my entire life. And yet... As a student of the word of God, I've got to submit to what Jesus says, as we all do. So let's look at what the word of God says. It says uh, in verse 16, I'm going to read it one more time. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, lest anybody think that there should be pride in their way of thinking that Jesus is our friend, Jesus sets the record straight for us here. 
none of us have become his friends simply by our own choosing. That, that would be impossible. And the reason why it would be impossible is because every one of us is born in this world in rebellion to God and in his son. In fact, we hate him naturally left to ourselves. If it is utterly impossible for us to desire to be friends with God. We are told in the scriptures that no man in his sinful nature seeks after God. So if reconciliation and if friendship are to come, they will only come if God takes the initiative to seek us out. Friends, if you're in Christ this morning, it's only because of his grace that has chosen to place his love upon you. That's the only reason. If you've been saved, it is only because the one who came to seek and save that which is lost has found you. That's it. So if you're not in Christ this morning, you would do well to beg God, and I mean beg and plead to God for mercy. Pray that you would be one on whom his loving grace would be poured out. Friends, as, as far as we're concerned, humanly speaking, the simplest way for any of us to figure out whether or not somebody is elect of God is for them to respond to his gracious invitation. That's it. See, if, if you respond favorably and truly to the call of the gospel, then it means that you've been given this loving grace. It means he is working in your heart and in your life, drawing you to himself. So if he's moving upon your heart to do this, friends, you need to respond to the gospel call and you need to do it. You need to come and you need to come now. Now, now the doctrine of election, as I study it and as I wrestled with it, I found out it is a, is a deep and glorious doctrine. In fact, it's a doctrine that we would do well to think upon and have discussions upon. In fact, Satan has used this doctrine to divide churches. But friends, I, I'm praying he would never use this doctrine to divide this church. That we would always be able to have open conversation. Let, let me tell you this. I, I, I mean this. You don't have to believe everything your pastor believes about the doctrine of election and still be a member of Christ's body in this church. There are room for disagreement somewhere in here. But I pray that we would disagree, disagree well. <laughs> I pray that we would agree on, on, on the, the essential things and we disagree well on the non-essential things. So if there's ever a, a, a desire for you to have a conversation about what all this means, oh, we could talk for days about what this all means. I pray that you'd come and meet with me and we'd have a, a wonderful discussion. Yet, there is a practical side to the doctrine of election. See, rightly understood, the doctrine of election goes hand in hand with bearing fruit. That's what Jesus says in our verse, doesn't it? Look how John puts it again in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever he asks of the Father in my name, he may be given unto you. He chooses a people with a purpose. Those whom he chooses, he appoints that you would go and bear fruit, evidence, and that that fruit would remain. It's not enough for us to be satisfied and just sit around content to argue doctrines like this on the internet about some of these things that are just a mystery. That's not the purpose that God has revealed this wonderful truth to us. Those who merely enjoy studying doctrines like this to debate it with others but have no practical fruit in their lives really don't have a leg to stand on as believing that they're chosen of the Lord. Works ought to flow from the life of the one who's been saved. 
It is the evidence that you've been changed by the Lord. And you'll notice here that Jesus not only mentions that, that he appointed this to us, that we would bear fruit, but he says that our fruit should stay. It should remain. In other words, there ought to be evidence of lasting fruit in your lives. See, you're on shaky ground if you're placing all your hope and salvation in the fact that you happened to pray a sinner's prayer when you were six years old and nothing has developed in your life since. Jesus has appointed us, has saved us so that we would bear fruit and that fruit would remain. If you made a profession of faith a long time ago, then there should be lasting fruit that has come since that day. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, election is always to sanctification. Those whom Christ chooses out of mankind, he chooses not only that they may be saved, but they may bear fruit and fruit that can be seen. All other election besides this is a mere vain delusion and a miserable invention of man. It was the faith and hope and love of the Thessalonians which made Paul say, I know your election of God. Where there is no visible fruit of sanctification, we may be sure that there is no election. See, in the same place where Jesus speaks of bearing fruit, he also makes mention of prayer. And this is important, friends. He said this over and over again. Of course, prayer is the kind of fruit we expect to see in the lives of those who have been chosen to be friends with Jesus. Makes perfect sense, you think. We talk about being his friend, don't we? Let me ask you. You communicate with your friends? <laughs> How can anybody they say they are a friend of Jesus and yet not spend any time talking to him in prayer? If communication is a sign of our friendship with one another, then we should expect that those who are friends with the Lord Jesus Christ to communicate also with him. So I'm just going to ask you an application question bluntly. What's your friendship with the Savior looking like these days? How are your prayers going with your Savior? Are you spending time with him? Are you growing in your relationship with him? We, we have to constantly remind ourselves that prayer is a privilege. It is. And, and while it is a privilege, it is certainly that. Friends, it's also a responsibility. We need to be a people of prayer. We, we need not only to be a people of private prayer, but public prayer as well. And just look around. There are a lot that you could pray about these days. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems that things aren't going too well in our nation. Not just our nation, but our world. And not even that, but even in the broader church. Friends, we're, we're a mess. We need a revival. We need the Lord to awaken the people of this land for, from their slumber. And, and, and church family, the only hope we have of seeing such a drastic change is by God's people crying out together before the Lord. It is said in the work of the advancement of the kingdom that the church advances on its knees. I hope that you're praying in your private lives, and I trust that you are. But friends, I, I hope that you would consider coming down at, at our time of invitation even to join your heart with God's people and cry out to them collectively. Would you consider to make time to just postpone your lunch plans a little bit and come down front and pray with our men today for revival? You look back on the history. Listen to me. 
Church history is something I love studying. You look back at the history of the church. When revivals happen, revivals rarely ever are a consequence of someone saying, you know what, I want so-and-so to preach here, and I want them to preach here for three or four days, so let's go ahead and put that on the calendar. No, revivals, historically, as far as the record shows, they happen when God's people pray. They are brought when God's people pray together. They've been a consequence of prayer. We need to desire it. And one of the ways we show how much we desire it is by devoting time to pray for it. You want God to save people in this land? Are you sick and tired of the, of the wickedness and the scheming of man? Are you praying? And I, I don't mean, are you saying, I'll pray for you? I'm praying. I mean, are you on your knees praying for revival in this church, in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world? God decides to work through prayer. It's a means by which he chooses to work. Pray to be faithful to pray together. Finally, in verse 17, our last verse of the morning, this I command you that you love one another. I think we've heard this before, haven't we? <laughs> i heard a couple times. Having just mentioned his election of us to be his friends, Jesus moves on to remind us again that we are to love one another. And, and knowing his choice of us and how much he loves us is by far the greatest motivator we could ever have for loving one another. I, I can tell you, friends, we need all the motivation we can get to fulfill this commandment. The truth is, in and of ourselves, you and I are unlovable people. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you're unlovable. I saw a lot of husbands falling for that and not a lot of smart husbands not falling for that, right? You on your own are unlovable. So in that, you would do well to consider how Jesus loves you in spite of your unlovable nature. The only way we can fulfill this responsibility is for us to constantly remember and think about Christ's love for us personally. That's the reminder we don't love people because of their worthiness. People aren't worthy of, 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 of our particular love. They're just worthy of Christ's love. That's not why we love. We don't love those who are worthy of love because we're not worthy of love. Jesus didn't do that. We were never worthy of his love. He didn't look down into eternity future and say, that's the guy I want to love. Man, he's a really good time. No, we were as unworthy as it gets, and Jesus has showered his love upon us. If we're going to follow in his steps, we would be wise to do likewise. And when we hear someone say, that person's just hard to love, well, you are too. <laughs> in your own ways, that, that's not an excuse See, it's not only that we love Jesus because he first loved us, but it is also that we love one another because Jesus first loved us. Whenever we love one another, we do so because of Christ and his love for us. So we who bask in the love of Christ will certainly be a people who are overflowing with his love so that his love would spread to others around. That's the key to learning how to love one another. It's to contemplate the love God has for you. Friends, the more you think about his love for you, the more your heart will overflow with love towards others. 
So if you feel like you've been blowing it lately in this area, as I know I have, perhaps the thing you need to do is to spend more time considering how much Jesus loves us. You know, this is the third time in just a few verses that Jesus impresses upon us this commandment. Surely you heard this, and I've gone through this plenty of times even in this section. So we might wonder, why is it that God would think it necessary to repeat himself so often, so few verses? Then again, just a quick glance at our own lives and our continual failure to love others as we ought. It quickly reveals just how often we need to be reminded of this. You know what your pastor's worst day is in his mind when it comes to, to spiritual growth and struggling with sin? Monday. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you, all right? I'm going to charge you for a therapy session here. Monday. And you know what I always think about? Cody, what did you just preach? <laughs> what did you just stand from the pulpit and proclaim? We need to be reminded again and again and again. Christ loves us. Therefore, we ought to love one another with the same love that he loved us. Just quickly reveals how often we need to be reminded. Let's conclude here and bow our hearts in prayer before we respond to worship for all the Lord has said to us today. Father, we thank you for your word. Whoa, there's a lot of stuff in here this morning. Father, we are... Uh, blown away with the great sacrificial uniqueness of your love for us and the sacrificial gift of laying down your life for what you would call your friends. And Father, we marvel at the fact that you would refer to us as friends. Father, knowing our own hearts, knowing our tendency to run astray and, and run far from you, it's amazing that you would consider us your friends. Father, even more so that you call us friends, we're reminded that this friendship wasn't of our initiative. That, Lord, you and your all-sovereign uh, sovereignty and, and wisdom have, have looked forward and, and saved us and, and elected us and chose us. And, Father, that's a difficult thing to grasp. We know that there is evidence for all of those who've been chosen by the Lord. So, Father, we pray that we would be one that would bear much fruit and that our fruit would remain. Lord, you say once again in your word that... We have not because we ask not. Lord, we are, as we celebrate this country, and yet we, we see uh, with broken hearts a lot of people not celebrating. Um, Lord, we are in desperate need of revival, not for nationalism purposes, but for the kingdom of God to go forth uh, from the highest office in the land to the lowest office in the land. So, Lord, we know that it's something that only you can provide. And so let us be a people of prayer for revival for this nation. And Father, finally, we need help in loving one another. Lord, would you remind us through the scriptures of how you loved us. Lord, that that love would overflow from our hearts to our neighbors, to our spouses, to our church family. For the glory of God and the kingdom's sake. Father, we pray if there's anyone here who's not a friend of Jesus. Lord, that knows they still remain an enemy. That, Lord, they would be quick to fall on their knees and beg for you. um, To shower your love upon them. That they may become yours. We know that you're faithful to do it. We've seen your work faithfully in the last couple of weeks, Lord. Lord, we pray your blessings upon this church as we respond to you now in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.